the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani-Elbov. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Yafa El-Masri. She's a PhD researcher at the University of Padova, focusing in human geography. And right now, she's visiting us here in Helsinki. But don't worry, everyone. We are still recording via Zoom, so we're properly social distancing. So welcome to the virtual show, Yafa. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be here. So Yafa, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, Yeah, sure. So originally, I am uh, a Palestinian that grew up in Lebanon. I studied mostly business-related matters in university, but I have always worked and felt passionate for humanitarian aid and grassroots development. A few years later, I arrived in Italy to get my master's degree in geography. And since then, I've just been really passionate about human geography. And now I'm doing my PhD in Italy, as Chris said. You said human geography. Can you tell us a little bit about what's the difference between human geography and the geography that I think of when I think of geography, which is like maps and whatnot? Yeah, geography is truly such a big field and it's such an exciting one. And you could think of natural geography. When you first think of geography, you could think of cartography, which is making maps, or you could also think of mountains and lakes and landscapes in general. But um, these are really such different types. There's also a political geography. Um, human geography kind of looks more as, uh, sorry, it kind of looks more at the way human interaction with the landscape has shaped or is shaping the current world that we're in. So the way you see the world today or the landscape that you see today or the operations that happen on the earth are actually a result of human activities and human actions on this landscape. So we kind of study these activities, these actions, these operations that humans have been conducting in order to shape the space or shape the landscape and the implications of all of these activities. So that summarizes pretty much uh, the human geography part of the really big realm of geography in general. Thanks for that. And getting into the meat of things, you know, something, uh, I guess for our listeners, a while back, uh, I was really happy to attend a seminar where you were talking about your research, and it was just so fascinating. I mean, talking about alternatives, I, I've seen very few things that are so powerful and, and real-life examples. And so it was really, really great to be able to have you come on here. So I guess, without me blathering on any further, could you tell us about your research? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess in a nutshell, if I had to like summarize it in a sentence, I would say that I research uh, mainly about solidarity among refugees. And then I try to kind of argue how I think this solidarity is exactly what the rest of the world needs. That would be in just one sentence. So basically, the argument is that I think we could all very much notice and acknowledge very clearly how this concept of um, uh, growth-centered and production-centered development has completely destroyed us as humans, our relations, our mental health, our biological health, the biodiversity, the nature. Um, the implications of this growth-centered development has has had uh, has been very devastating on our planet. Um, And most importantly, I think it has induced the situation of individualism 
the need for production and the focus on markets and work rather on the focus on humans themselves has made us all so individualistic in the global north. And I think this is a very important aspect because it's deforming us as humans as we are. So I argue that the solidarity is really a key aspect that could repair what these capitalistic or growth-centered operations have been doing to our planet. So, okay, if we acknowledge that solidarity is key, and this has been mentioned and talked about so much in the Pluriverse, uh, in books about post-development, but also on uh, so much literature that is about social change, revolutions, etc. So if we establish that solidarity is key to changing the world, what I'm trying to establish in this research is that refugees are the best hubs for solidarity because all that refugees have are each other. Um, in a stateless community where you're not protected by the government, you're not protected by humanitarian aid, all you have is each other and therefore we could observe solidarity so much. So by arguing that solidarity exists strongly among refugees, then we can deduce that when refugees migrate or arrive to the rest of the world or to the West or to the global North, they're actually bringing us the factor that we need. They're actually bringing us the secret ingredient to repairing the world. So if we keep saying that another world is possible and that we need to change the world, maybe it's this factor of solidarity this is what's going to help us repair the world. So we need to stop talking about the way we are rescuing refugees arriving to us in Europe. That's probably not the right way to look at it. I think it's the other way around, that we are being rescued by migrants and refugees that are bringing us so many values that the global north has, I'm sorry, unfortunately lost over time due to being overrun by production-centered operation and by capitalism and by this kind of systems. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. Could you tell us a bit about how you got involved um, with this particular community and topic? You mentioned that you um, have some ties with the area. Yes, uh, so I am a Palestinian refugee myself. So legally, even until this day, I am still stateless. So I was born to two Palestinian refugee parents. Uh, my father was born in Palestine, but he was forcefully displaced in 1948. So he actually lost his Palestinian citizenship due to this conflict and due to the occupation and displacement. My mother was born in a refugee camp in Beirut, so which means I was born and lived my entire life um, in uh, refugee camps in Beirut, in Lebanon. And um, it means that we lack citizenship of, of any country in the world. So I have no nationality of any recognized state. Therefore, I think I not only relate much to my research, but I think my research itself is an autoethnography, which means most of the concepts I talk about and most of the projects that I study or initiatives are either things I've witnessed myself or have been through myself or projects that I have contributed to or watched them grow. So you could say it's, um, it's quite personal on so many levels. One of the, the big things that really stood out to me in your presentation before is, of course, your deep personal connection with all this, but as well the, the insight into these projects and movements and your, your experience 
around this. Would you mind sharing some highlights of the the, the big things you're focusing on and what really stands out to you? Yeah, sure. So in terms of experience, I've worked with so many grassroots organizations. I've worked with medium-sized organizations that work towards, for example, education of Palestinian refugees. I've worked with really small grassroots just initiatives, not even official ones that are just working to create some kind of community development. But I've also worked at a UN agency for quite a while. And I think I've kind of noticed how I was, um, let's just say I was dissatisfied with the performance or with the methods used by larger organizations towards community development. And it was weird that I actually preferred the grassroots organizations and the very little uh, non-official initiatives. I felt like they were making more community impact rather than the larger schemes of development that are planned by uh, white people in the North and disregarding completely any local needs, disregarding completely the voices of the people that these projects are applied to. We're developing entire projects, spending millions of dollars on projects that serve people that don't even need them that way. Or, you know, they need different things. People, I felt they were not being voiced and they were not being listened to. I mean, I do admire many of the programs that are made by these UN agencies, but I just think we need to make them more participatory. And I think that was the aspect that I'm trying to prove in my research that we need to stop treating refugees as if they are helpless, voiceless victims. Stop putting refugees and minorities on mute and actually listen to them and let them plan their own schemes of development. And you know what? They might just sur surprise you because just maybe they might not only just be able to fix their own reality, but they might be able to even bring remedy to the rest of the world. So I think that's the relationship I've had between my work and the disappointments I've faced in my career with um, with this research. I think it has shaped it. So you mentioned a few terms, um, and one of the ones that stuck out to me was you were talking about solidarity and how solidarity is such an important building block of the community you grew up in and also one that you see as missing under this productionist paradigm that we're living in in the global north. Could you unpack that for us a little bit and tell us more about like what solidarity means and what it looks like in practice? Yeah, of course. Um, so solidarity is such an interesting concept and um, Bowerman for me was the main source of literature that really talked about solidarity in such a, a simple yet clear but a rich way and you know just very clearly he defines solidarity as uh, a social norm where people act in the interest of others even if sometimes that contradicts or that takes away from your own interest so you're behaving in the interest of someone else even though that means less resources for you or even if that means that might not be in your best interest. Um, and Bauman really um, studies this concept really well and he goes through it historically, emphasizing the way we 
lost solidarity, let's say. And he gives this really interesting story about how uh, humans throughout history did mainly behave in solidarity. But then the more we started witnessing the growth of states or the organization of states, and especially the welfare state, we didn't really need to help each other anymore much. I mean, we didn't really need to support each other because the states were pretty much supporting us. So we started witnessing solidarity less and less. But there is also more literature that goes farther to focus somehow about capitalism and how um, the more we became focused on work and production, the less we could focus on humans and families and social connections. Because, um, I mean, it's better for the market or for the factory that you spend time at work, not to spend time with family and friends and having fun. Then you would want to take off more time. You would want to spend more holidays. You would want to spend more nights with your family. And that's not really good for business. What's good for business is you take extra shifts, you work from home, and you produce to make the corporation and the industry better. So that was also um, another aspect in which we witnessed the decline of solidarity, but also in a way, the competitiveness of the market-oriented uh, mentality. Because in a market-oriented mentality, when everyone is competed, competing over these resources, it's very competitive and everybody's focused on their own interests and not really focused on uh, the collective interest. So we started having this strong individualism. Um, there's this really great book called Lost Connections by Johanna Harry. And I mean, he's, he's actually a psychologist, but it's a really interesting book to read. And he speaks about how humans over history always lived in tribes and groups and we are actually the first human beings to dismantle these tribes. Thus, we are the loneliest human beings that have ever lived. No human beings before lived so separately and so disconnected from each other. And he argues in the book how this is making us sad, depressed, suffering from mental health issues. And thus, in general, we're jeopardizing our well-being greatly. So I think this fits into my argument of the research that maybe our well-being is not only financial well-being and economical well-being, it's also mental, mental well-being and emotional well-being and individualism uh, contributes to this, um, to, um, to destroy this well-being in so many aspects and in so many ways. Definitely. And that's such a, a fascinating point and, and long historical view on it. You know, it definitely brings to mind the writings of like Abdullah Oshlan and uh, a few others. Uh, I'm curious, though, uh, going back to this. So when you're talking about these Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon, how does solidarity work in there? Isn't there the UN agency, uh, UNHCR, to be able to come in and help organize things and stuff like that? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a complex story when it comes to speaking about Palestinian refugees, because normally when we say refugees, we think, oh, there is the refugee convention and there is the UNHCR. There you go. They're protected just like everyone else. But the Palestinian refugee crisis is such a unique one. And I don't mean unique in a positive way, of course. Um, so for one, it is 
the longest refugee crisis. It's been 72 years uh, with no solution in sight. So we call them a situation of protracted refugees. So their refugee situation just keeps getting protracted with no actual plan or strategy. For Palestinian refugees, they are the world's only exception from the Refugee Convention and from the UNHCR, which means that no other refugee population in the world has ever been excluded from the UNHCR. Um, and this is because their situation of refuge has been quite particular. Normally, when you speak of a refugee, the traditional definition of a refugee has always been, especially historically, when the UN Convention was made, it refers to a person who's afraid to go back home. With Palestinian refugees, it's a bit different. This refugee population has been forcefully displaced from home, but they actually wanna go back home. And there is a UN resolution, which is UN resolution number 194, and article one specifically states that these people must be able to go back to their communities and cities and houses. So by law, by international law, Palestinians have the right to go back. But the Israeli occupation has forbidden them from doing that, which means that this apartheid state of occupation does not let Palestinians actually gain access back to their cities and communities. So the situation here is that these refugees want to go back home and they're trying and they're fighting for it legally and in so many other ways, but they're just not being allowed to do so. So this is a very different type of refugees, let's say. So in that sense, the UN at that time, before even the Refugee Convention was made, uh, created the agency uh, called UNRWA, which is United Nations Relief and Works Agency, uh, which is an agency that was only designed to serve the population of Palestinian refugees because they had such a specific situation that they had to make a, their own UN agency for them. And um, this is also very unique because there is no other UN agency that is designed to serve uh, only one population or one, one group of people. Um, UNRWA was created for the support of Palestinians. It does give them some humanitarian aid, access to education, to services such as healthcare. Uh, however, there's a big problem with UNRWA is that it doesn't have a fixed budget from the UN. So UNDP, UNHCR, UNICEF, all these other organizations, they have a fixed budget that they get from the UN. UNRWA, on the other hand, is just funded by voluntary contributions from member states, which means if nobody decides to donate, like this year, for example, because everyone else's money is going towards COVID issue, the UNRWA goes broke and nobody gets any services. And this is something that we are actually dealing with right now, where UNRWA just announced that it ran out of funds, that it doesn't even have enough money to pay the salaries of its employees for the month of November. So unless miraculously and out of nowhere, $70 million appear out of nowhere to fund the UNRWA, it's going to have to suspend its services. Nobody goes to school, nobody gets healthcare in a global pandemic, and nobody has shelter. And we're speaking about a large humanitarian crisis. So yes, Palestinian refugees are aided by this UN agency, but it's a very underfunded UN agency, and it provides um, it provides services that are really just minimum 
and much less than the basic human needs. It provides uh, a certain level of, of education and healthcare, but refugees do require much more than that. And therefore we start witnessing solidarity that comes as this alternative to these structured services and structured welfare. So what you witness instead is people being there for each other. Um, in my research, I speak about so many ways of solidarity, for example, uh, food sharing. Uh, food sharing is going to be a large part of my research because, you know, growing up, you kind of think that this is the normal way of things, that people eat together or share food or that you automatically um, give portions of your food to the society because you grow up thinking that this is the normal way. And then uh, you realize that this is just a coping mechanism in a society where 62% have food insecurity. So 62% have some type of food insecurity, meaning that they don't have enough food to eat for the day, including families who have children and sick people. But around 41% of those suffering from food insecurities deal with it or cope with it through food sharing with each other, through eating with neighbors and sometimes strangers and other family members or friends. So this is only a small example of solidarity in food or um, solidarity and mutual support in coping with crises. Um, other forms of solidarity that I have seen and lived through in these camps come through solidarity and protecting the narrative of displacement and narrating the history and the geography of um, the Palestinian identity. So um, Palestinians also face this, um, let's say, struggle of maintaining their identity and ma maintaining their right and their narrative while being abroad and exiled. So it's been 72 years and you have four generations that are living outside of Palestine. So how do you how do you resist having your identity wiped away? How do you resist the ongoing ethnic cleansing? And I think that a major way of resisting that is the way there's strong solidarity in educating and narrating um, the geography of occupation and the history of occupation and the narrative of the Palestinian displacement and how it happened and the right to return, for example. Um, there's strong solidarity in that and there's strong practices of mm, passing on the heritage, if I could say. So you see cross-generational solidarity where grandparents pass on these ideas and these stories and their stories of their own displacement, how uh, they teach their kids the narrative and the rights and then their kids move it on. And so we've been having that for four generations. So it's some kind of a cross-generational solidarity. And um, also another part that I really appreciate in my community is the sisterhoods. And I think it's this, the strongest the strongest form of solidarity that I've encountered where I realized that the solidarity among women is really so strong that it has been the, the strongest coping mechanism that women resort to. They've realized that they are each other's strongest protectors and they are each other's 
biggest supporters in dealing with uh, social issues, but also dealing with economic issues. And um, I think it's been quite fascinating to see it uh, because I think it's some kind of a feminist structure. And it was so weird to see it in a place where people don't expect maybe to observe feminist phenomena. Thank you for giving us some insight into that. One of the questions that I have actually relates back to what you had just said about education. We had a podcast guest on um, last year, Kathy Machoa. She was an Ecuadorian woman um, from the Quechua people in Ecuadorian Amazonia, and she was talking a lot about education and how education was a way um, for her community to, you know, hold on to uh, their own agency. And one of the concepts that she brought up was decolonializing education. Is that also something that you've seen in the solidarity movements in your community? Yes, definitely. Um, decolonizing education is definitely at the heart of this part of the research. And I think um, the story began with the way that Palestinians kind of observed that the kind of education that their children get at school doesn't really address anything about the history of colonialism, the history of occupation. It doesn't address anything related to their identities, Palestinians or their heritage. It just completely disregards the fact that these people are refugees, stateless in a refugee camp. And these children don't even know why this happened. How is it possible that a person goes to school for a number of years and comes out having learned nothing about why he's in a refugee camp or why he's different than other people. Why doesn't he have a passport? So the UN provided education in these refugee camps has this gap where it sees that this is an issue of um, debate or conflict. Um, it is viewed that it breaches the neutrality policy of UN agencies. But again, this is breaching much more than that. This is breaching the rights of these people to voice their own struggles. This is, uh, this is somehow muting these refugees. It is silencing them. And it's kind of telling them, you don't get to tell your side of the story. Um, you don't get to be voiced. Uh, I mean, there is an acknowledgement. There is this um, historical context. There's so many Israeli historians, for example, that have written so much about uh, the forced displacement of Palestinians. So it's not really a, an issue of debate whether this happened or not. There's, for example, a great book called The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestinians by Ilan Pepe. There's also The Palestinian Refugee Problem by Benny Morris. And they're both Israelis who narrate extensively on the massacres being done and on the displacement. So why is it that when we start to talk about the struggles or the displacement or the, the violence that the weaker people have gone through, suddenly we are muting that and suddenly we're not gonna talk about that in education and we're not gonna we're not gonna teach kids about that. It's it's only because they are the weaker link. It's only because Palestinians in the story are the weaker link, so they don't get their problem voiced. So um, what happened is that Palestinians wanted to take control and wanted to take agency of their own narrative and wanted to take agency of how their children are educated and they kind of resorted to informal ways where they do educate their children at home about their identity and passing on uh, sometimes just 
small totems or small items. For example, if you meet a Palestinian, he will always have a key in his house. And nobody knows that these keys are actually the actual keys that we've inherited to our homes in our original cities in Palestine. So even though 72 years ago we were displaced from these houses, every Palestinian home still actually has the physical key to this house, which probably no longer exists or is now inhabited by another family back in the occupied territories. But we still hold on to the key because it's a symbol of something that we belong to. It's a symbol of saying, I have a home there. It has meaning to us. So this is, this is a kind of education that you have these rights, you come from this place, and we've been displaced because of this story. But another part of the decolonizing education structure that I resort to is a bit more, let me say, a bit more organized. And I talk about this amazing initiative which is called Al-Naqab Center. And it is a group of volunteers who once decided to do this kind of a summer activity for children. And they said, okay, let's do some activities. They've grouped the children. They've practiced music and sports with them for the summer. And then by the end of the summer, they wanted to shut down the activity. And they, these kids started saying, why are we shutting down? And the volunteers said, because we're, we're going to school now. And then... It was at that time that they noticed that there's about 90 kids who don't go to school. So they had these 90 kids that were saying, oh, we don't go to school. We don't have to go back to school. Can we please stay in the activity? And then these volunteers realized that even though education is free uh, by this UN agency, a lot of children don't have the access to education due to legal issues or due to financial issues because they would still have to pay for different uh, school expenses, let's say books or whatever, and they still cannot afford that. So even if they get to go to school for free, they cannot afford a school uniform, for example. So they just don't go to school. So the project started when these volunteers created this small center saying, okay, these children don't get to go to school. We're going to teach these children. And they just start teaching them the normal curriculum. It took the UN agencies a few years to realize that there has been a gap and we do have a number of children that do go to school and they do take in these children to school. What these volunteers found at that time is how much incomplete is the education curriculum. And they said, okay, let's develop our own and let's complement or supplement the education they do get at UN schools with our own curriculum. So they've established their own curriculum teaching the geography of Palestinian territories, the history of the Palestinian territories, the history of the Palestinian displacement, uh, the current legal and international law structures around refugees and why they are a different type of refugees and their rights, their obligations, where they fit into the international conventions. So they've, they've actually given them the Palestinian narrative of the story. And all of it was based on either Palestinian literature or oral history or Palestinian archives. Thus, they were kind of taking agency of, of their own community and of their own story and giving children the kind of education that they do deserve. They were giving them, uh, finally, not a colonized uh, version of the education, the, not the version of education that gives... Um, that gives the winner only to tell their side of the story, but they were giving them 
the type of education that relates to their background, their identity as Palestinian, their history. It's, it also gave them a chance to know themselves and, and identify themselves as Palestinians because now they know their background. So it was definitely really interesting to observe this kind of project. They are a very unique project. And to go a step further more in the decolonization process, um, this project kind of got famous and they were offered uh, funding from international organizations and they actually refused it because they wanted to keep the financial independency. They did not want to have this kind of um, authority from an international donor. They did not want, they wanted to be completely independent and completely Palestinian, completely local. So they are just um, funding themselves through actually their own salaries of the volunteers that they get from other jobs. And they also do crowdfunding campaigns where they do music nights and talent shows and they collect just local donations from the community itself to feed money into the program. So this way, they're 100% uh, local, 100% grassroots, 100% decolonized. So it's a it's an overall a really interesting experience to study. That's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, something that I really want to get into here, and it's something that you brought up in the seminar that you gave, and I think it's a really important piece of the picture. Uh, like, why can't Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, why can't they get Lebanese citizenship? And also, like, how is this tying in with societal dynamics? What's the impact? going on between these these two communities? Um, well, the reason that I choose uh, to focus uh, in this research on Palestinian refugees in Lebanon um, is because Lebanon itself is, is quite a unique country in terms of welcoming refugees. So Palestinian refugees exist all across the Middle East. So we're talking about 5 million people that exist in Syria, Jordan, um, inside Palestinian territories, but also a little bit in Egypt and Iraq. Lebanon had like 10% of Palestinian refugees, so we're speaking about half a million Palestinian refugees who have been there for 72 years. So that's a really long time. And if you think about it logically, you would say, oh, they could have gotten the citizenship by now. That's, that's impossible. But Lebanon has this really interesting constitution, which I have to say is a French legacy. It was put in 1926 or 29, something around that time. And of course, it was pretty much designed by the French colonization or mandate at that time. But the thing is that even after the French mandate ended, they never adjusted that constitution. Now, what's wrong with that constitution? There is a really big problem, which is in the constitution, Lebanon is so afraid on over its demographics and over the balance between religions that it clearly states that uh, non-Lebanese are not allowed whatsoever in whatever time to be settled in Lebanon, which means that as a foreigner, as a refugee, you can never have the Lebanese citizenship. And the same thing, for example, applies to Syrian refugees. Now you have around 1 million Syrian refugees that cross the borders to Lebanon, and they're struggling in the same issue. Now, the problem is not only with having the citizenship, the problem is with access to public services. So even if you have been living in Lebanon for 15 years, you're not actually recognized as a permanent resident in Lebanon. You're not really recognized as a full refugee who has the right to enjoy public services. 
So both Syrian and Palestinian refugees and other types of refugees in Lebanon, they have no access to healthcare, to education, to any service that the government provides to its citizens. So when we say Palestinians are the exception pretty much to all the the formal services or the institutionalized services, uh, this is why, because even in their host community, they are the exception. They are in a community that doesn't allow them to be integrated in any way. For example, they're not even allowed to access the labor market. So they can't even have a job, which, you know, if you think about it quite logically, um, how do you expect these people to survive if they are not allowed to access services from the government, if they're not allowed to um, access the labor market or, or have a job to provide income? How, how do you expect people to live or to survive for the last 70 years? So it's a, it's a very challenging situation. There's like, um, from all the areas of presence of UNRWA, uh, or also of Palestinian refugees, Lebanon has the highest rate of abject poverty among all of them. We're talking about 75% that suffer from extreme poverty. Um, 6% of Palestinian refugees get to go to university, just 6%. As we spoke about uh, food insecurity rates, uh, the living conditions, it's, uh, it's truly tragic. And maybe that's why I was making this argument that I really think Palestinian refugees in Lebanon survive great, to a great extent on solidarity and on being there to each other and in creating these grassroots initiatives and just volunteering and donating the very little resources they have to each other and donating their skills. So I truly think that Palestinians in Lebanon survive to a great extent based uh, on solidarity and they, they survive on supporting each other and mutual support and assisting each other in food sharing and all the mechanisms that we've mentioned. I really think this is a big reason for why Palestinians are able to survive. I think that hearing about um, this lived experience and reality that exists is so, I can't think of a good word for it, but it's, um, a startling in a way, because I think that sometimes it's very easy. Like, for example, I grew up in North America and now I live in Finland. And it sometimes, you know, it's easy to put things like colonialism in a box that's over here and, oh, that's history. That's something that happened. It's unfortunate, but it's over. And um, I think that you're uh, sharing with us these realities that are being experienced by Palestinian refugees in um, Lebanon really bring to the forefront that these colonial legacies, like it's not history and it's not over and it's still very much um, at the forefront and real with impacts in, you know, our modern world that are happening right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, the discrimination uh, that refugees have to go through in Lebanon. I mean, Lebanon is, is considered to be the country with the highest refugee per capita in the entire world, where you have around 2 million Lebanese citizens, but then you have around 2 million refugees or one and a half million refugees. And to have that country specifically being the country known as the place with the most discriminatory legislations in the area, discriminatory against refugees, 
it, it brings to your mind how it is um, unfair to to two million people. And as you said, this is a legacy in this case, it's a legacy of the French colonization impacting the Lebanese constitution and and the Lebanese law. But it's also um, it's also let's say a legacy of the British colonization, which has put Palestinian refugees in the situation of displacement in the first place, because if Palestine was under the British mandate and these this conflict happened under the British mandate, then this displacement by itself and the way the British mandate handled it uh, is also a colonial legacy that until today it hasn't been solved because now you have 5 million stateless refugees in in 2020. In, the, in this century, we're still speaking about 5 million people who have no nationalities, no citizenship, no access to basic human rights. I mean, who in this world still has no nationality or no passport? And I really think people do need to open up their eyes to the fact that, yes, there is 5 million people who live in that situation who are, une are in unable even to determine what their nationality is legally. I mean, it's a simple question that you get asked every day. Where are you from? And then if, if, when you're Palestinian, it's sometimes it's really hard to answer that. It's really hard because if you say I'm Palestinian and you've never been to Palestine, you're exiled. You don't have a Palestinian nationality. And you can't say you're from Lebanon where you've spent your entire life because simply you don't, you're not acknowledged there even as a citizen or a resident. I mean, we're actually acknowledged in Lebanon as um, a specific type of foreigners who have no uh, official document of another recognized state. Like that's, that's even like, I couldn't even use that to define myself because it's so long. So living without a passport or even a proper identity document, like we walk around with these large blue documents that are handwritten <laughs> Uh, that just say who we are. They just have our picture stapled and, and our name written in, in handwritten form. And that's the only form of identity we have. And we have a refugee travel document that we use to travel around, which makes your life very miserable if you plan to get on the road. And, you know, it's disturbing to think that this is still allowed to happen in this century, that people are still struggling with these kinds of issues and, and that nothing is being done about it and it's just being pushed back more and more over the years and it's only getting worse, it's not getting better. So talking more about this concept of solidarity, how does solidarity actually translate to well-being in like a concrete sense? Can you give us some insight into some of the projects that have gone from solidarity and sisterhood into manifestations of like concrete well-being? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I've, I've viewed it or witnessed it in so many different projects throughout my life where the main motive for building a project is this collective well-being of people and not for profit making, for example, as we see in the mainstream or in the rest of the world. Um, for example, a project that really inspired me and it was built on sisterhood was the project of Sufra. And Sufra is this Arabic word, which means um, a dinner table or a feast of dinner table. 
And it's also a project kind of related to food and food sharing, but there's much more stronger values to it. There is that solidarity among women where um, a few women from the refugee camp that I'm from, which is called Burjah Barajne, and in this refugee camp specifically, a few women, they felt that they really are protective of each other and they resort to each other to face problems or struggles or even just daily challenges like babysitting each other's children or helping each other's with problems, personal problems, issues. So they began to think of a way to try to also develop their socioeconomic situation or to provide income to their families. And they decided to make this really small catering company. And they said, let's make Palestinian traditional food. And in some way, they felt like they were guarding, they're guarding their Palestinian identity and they're showing that they are proud of being Palestinian refugees and they're not ashamed of their Palestinian background. But also they thought we could create some income for us and for each other. And this way, we're also keeping our strong bond and our strong cooperation. So the project started with a few women, but it actually worked out so well when these women were selling food to areas surrounding the camp. They were selling traditional Palestinian authentic food and it was selling well and they were making more income until they decided to make the first ever refugee women-led food truck. And this idea came out because they wanted to challenge the mobility restrictions that are on both women and refugees. So here also we could think of the intersectionality that they're going through. So they're not just refugees and they're not just struggling because they are refugees, but also because they are women. And so the social stigma around that or around working women was in itself quite strong. So they also wanted to break that. And the source of strength that they had to fight the stigma and to do this kind of project was the solidarity and was the sisterhood that they had. So because they had each other, they could actually do this project. They had the courage to do this project and to break these boundaries, these social boundaries, they, these geographic boundaries. So they did a crowdfunding campaign. They started this food truck and they started touring all over Lebanon, breaking all of the rules, selling the food, uh, catering to conferences, to companies, to events, to concerts, to parties, uh, just street food. And the project kept growing until today. It actually has 40 different women. And these women are not only Palestinian. So what's amazing about this project is, is that it became kind of international solidarity where you have Palestinian refugee women, but you also have Syrian refugee women, Iraqi refugee women, and even Lebanese women from marginalized backgrounds. So it was kind of creating this solidarity or connection between women who were citizens of this country that is oppressing Palestinian refugees. And it was kind of state, it was kind of a statement that we are sisters, regardless of our uh, documentation, regardless of our legal status, uh, being a refugee or not, we can be sisters and we can work together. And this project doesn't only provide income for these women, but it also provides um, some kind of assistance uh, so some of the proceedings do go to families who suffer from financial difficulties in the camp, but also a big part of the food that they do produce while on the truck, it does go to families that suffer from food insecurities in the camp. So it's not only emphasizing and empowering these women, uh, it's empowering them to make 
uh, steps that otherwise they wouldn't have felt brave to do. But it's also um, creating some kind of assistance or development on uh, financial levels and also on social levels or economic levels by helping out some families and by supporting families who are suffering from um, economic problems. So and overall, it's, um, it's a really interesting project. And I invite people who want to know more about the project to watch the trailer of a documentary that was made about these women. So the work of these women and the sisterhood of these women has been really so inspiring that uh, Thomas Morgan created this documentary with the name of the project. So the documentary is called Sufra, S-O-U-F-R-A. So if you just go Google it online, you will get to see the trailer on YouTube. And it's a very inspiring trailer where you see women just uh, challenging all kinds of restrictions, all kinds of boundaries, and just trying to take control of their own future and try to take control of their own lives. And you will see that these women are always together. They're always strong. And what's making them strong is this sisterhood and this sense of we are protecting each other so we can do anything. And so I think also part of the idea that I'm trying to convey here is that solidarity is mobile and it is transferable. So solidarity and these kind of values, they do move with migrants and with refugees as they move around. So when I say that I think refugees can save the world, I think I'm saying that I think refugees could pass on this belief and solidarity to other nations and to other populations and to other people around the world. Because if this is what the world needs, if the world has been deformed by individualism, then maybe solidarity is the remedy and it could shape the world. And this has been discussed greatly in uh, books such as the Pluriverse. But if solidarity is what we need and if refugees could bring that, if, if we witness the women of Sufra bringing that to the host community or to the Lebanese community, and if we continue to observe that, how this solidarity is mobile and transferable, then I think that means that refugees are doing the world a great favor um, rather than the mainstream thought that the world is doing refugees a favor and that refugees should be grateful for it. Um, there's also this really great book called The Ungrateful Refugee for Dina Nayeri, and she, she speaks about her experience as an Iranian refugee and how people her entire life expected her to be so grateful for having become a refugee in the global north and how she should be so so thankful all the time that the world has saved her. And I think I relate greatly to that book in the sense that um, in my research, I'm trying to convey that you should stop expecting refugees to be grateful and you should stop um, feeling that you're saving refugees and maybe it's refugees that are saving the world and are probably going to bring it some of the remedies that it needs. That is absolutely beautifully profound. And um, for all our listeners, we will make sure to put links in the show notes uh, to the uh, documentary trailer that was mentioned. And also, um, you've mentioned some really great literatures throughout the course of this conversation. So we'll also make sure to put citations down to those literatures, just in case if anybody is interested to find out more about some of these concepts that have come up. 
um, both uh, from the academic perspective, like the pluriverse concept, um, and then also some of these other identity topics that you've mentioned, authors that have written on those. So we'll make sure to put citations to all of that down in the show notes so everybody can find all these interesting resources that you're sharing with us. There's just been so so much today in this conversation, but I, I know that we've been taking up a lot of your time and we're, we're getting towards the end of things. Uh, but at the end of every episode, we like to ask the question. The question? The question. It's the question. It What's is. the question? The question is... <gasps> for our listeners out there, this is a very, very moving story. And a lot of a lot of just things that were new to me. Um, and if they want to learn more, to get involved, to do something to make the world a bit of a better place, um, what could you suggest to them? Um, I think this is probably going to sound um, very cliche, but the easiest thing that anybody in Europe or, or the global north could do um, talk to or engage to the immigrants in your area, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your university. Um, I think I'm, I'm noticing more and more the, the exclusion and the separation between natives and immigrants in every country in the global north that I'm going to. And this is, I think this is also a contributor for why a lot of people don't know about what's going on in the global south. So the more you separate yourself, the more you don't know, the more you're oblivion about the crises, about the problems, about the struggles that go on in the global south. And I think we passed by immigrants and we, we really don't ask ourselves about what kind of struggles they ran from and what kind of struggles they went through and what kind of problems that they bravely faced. Um, I think just talking to people in your city, in your area, and sometimes they're in your building. And talking to them could teach you a lot about the stories that they come from, about the kind of communities that they come from, and sometimes about the good things that they come from, the values that they brought with them, the kind of good concepts, um, good food, good company, good ideas that they brought, that they brought a lot along with them from their home communities. So nothing too difficult, nothing too challenging. Just talk to people who are different than you and it will open up so many different perspectives uh, and new perspectives in life that you never thought you would be able to explore. And it's, it's a great way to, to educate yourself, just talking to refugees themselves, talking to migrants and to, uh, to people themselves. It's sometimes even more important, more informing than books or, or Google. So I think this is, this is a great um, favor that I would like to ask from our listeners. And thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been a pleasure. And I think that that's maybe the most humble and perhaps most impactful uh, call to action we've had thus far. And I think that that's something that every single one of us can do. Like that's, it's right there. It's right there. And it's so, it makes so much sense. And then it, sometimes it's so easy to forget. Yeah. Thank you so much for 
for sharing with us and for talking with us. And yeah, I, I totally agree with Sophia in terms of the, the call to action, because that is something so important for us to get out of ourselves, our bubbles, and interact with each other on a, on a human basis. Uh, and something that is so simple. Um, but yeah, just Yafa, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. It has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you really for having this really stimulating and interesting conversation with you both. It's been great. A huge thanks to Yafa Masri for coming on and just that amazing, informative, and very powerful conversation. Please join us next month when we'll be talking with Beril Ojakla. We're moving into a whole new context, Central Asia, to look at the intricacies of extractivism, alternatives, resistance, and identity in Soviet and post-Soviet Kyrgyzstan. Before we go, if you haven't done it already, please subscribe and leave us a review. It would help us out a lot. From the frozen seas of Helsinki, Finland, I am Christopher Shagnon. On behalf of Sofia Haglani Albov, thanks for listening, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time.